Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with the authors of Outbreak Culture, the Ebola Crisis, and the Next Pandemic. How are you doing today, ladies? Doing good. Thank you. I would like for you to pronounce your names, and we're going to get started. Sure. I'm Pardis Sabeti. And I'm Lara Salah. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in the project. Sure. Lara, do you want to go? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm a health journalist, um, a longtime health journalist, and uh, Parties and I met um, working on a project together um, uh, called Use Deeply, which is an initiative um, that explores, uh, you know, sort of single subject sites that explores topics in depth. And so um, it was back in 2014 uh, and the Ebola outbreak sort of raging at that time. And, uh, and there was one arm of News Deeply called Ebola Deeply in which Paris and I met. And so, um, you know, we worked together on a research project um, related to the outbreak and that formulated into this book. Yeah, and, and from my side, that's yes, yeah, so that same thing. So I was just I was a researcher working um, in at that time during amidst the Ebola outbreak, um, and had connected with the News Deeply team building this Ebola Deeply, and we became very passionate about how to um, get good information out um, and manage almost the kind of the, the interactions between humans um, uh, that are occurring. Uh, you know, one of one of my colleagues uh, and somebody on my team had described uh, Nathan Yazriak had described Ebola as a sort of backdrop to the soap opera that was happening between human beings, and we see that in COVID as well, right? There's this like backdrop, there's this like virus that's sort of premise, but it's not. There's this other interaction happening, and so um, became really really interested in in that culture that gets created that exists already in, in human culture that gets amplified during the insidious deadly threat that are out, viral outbreaks um, and that we perceive all of these things kind of go topsy-turvy. Um, and so 
in the course of our many communications around Ebola deeply, Lara and I talked more and more about this. And basically, I think Lara was like, every time I met with you, I'm like, I need to tell you about this crazy thing that just happened. And there was like yet another crazy thing I needed to tell you. And finally, Lara was like, why don't we just write a book about it? And so this is all like, this is Lara's sort of passion project dream, dream of, I just wanted to vent and she turned it into a book. So uh, that's sort of how it came to be. Great. Can you tell the audience about the people spider? When I read about Dr. Khan, I was just so impressed. Tell us about that, please. Yeah. Um, so Dr. Shikumar Khan is um, a colleague of mine who passed away during the Ebola outbreak, um, but who was essentially, you know, probably the world's expert on hemorrhagic fever viruses. Uh, one, you know, one of the world experts on hemorrhagic fever viruses, having treated um, countless Lassa fever patients. Um, Lassa fever is another virus like Ebola that causes high fatality and a really you know, painful deaths. And he had been treating um, that disease for a very long time. We'd been working together on Lassa fever in Sierra Leone. And when Ebola hit, he became the natural leader of the effort um, at kind of a government hospital where we work that became the epicenter of the outbreak. And, um, and so he was uh, a colleague and a friend um, and, uh, and he was a lot of the motivation behind this book because one of the most sort of jarring, you know, just days before he uh, ca- caught Ebola and succumbed to it, I had a phone call with him where he wanted to just talk to me about all of this soap opera that was swirling around him, the, the, the this feeling that all of these international organizations were all trying to take the lead in Ebola, but we're trying to depose him. We're trying to um, essentially badmouth him and 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 push him down. And he was just distraught. He was just so desperate for human connection, so desperate for help. And um, rather than help, you know, and he was so happy when he felt like help was coming um, only to find that instead of help, it was somebody else who he felt was once again, trying to, um, to besmirch him. And, and it, it just pains my heart that he like, you know, in those last days when he was fighting for treating 80 patients and, and, and struggling to, to, you know, being a hero that really what was happening behind the scenes was he was just feeling completely isolated, abandoned and attacked. Um, and that really became uh, the kind of calling card of what, what we were doing. We were trying to change that and somehow create a better culture going forward. And he really did not have to be there. That was so remarkable that he stayed to help his community. Yeah, no, definitely. I think these top, most of his family, much of his family are um, in Europe or the United States um, uh, and, uh, you know, are doing very, very well in those countries. And he had many opportunities to come and uh, work, you know, in the U.S. and elsewhere. But he uh, he really or 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 in other countries um, like Ghana and Sierra Leone, he'd done training there. So he had many opportunities to work elsewhere, but he Sierra Leone was his home and his calling was to help his people. And he was explicit about that too, because we, we talked to family members too, that were at one point just sort of telling him to, to come because there's many opportunities that were in the U S possibly for him. And, um, and so, but he did not, that was just not who he was, um, you know, based on our reporting. And so um, he truly is, you know, a, a, a leader in his community um, and uh, truly believed in the work that he was doing. 
Now, they had this new Z-Map. Why do you think Dr. Khan was not given the choice to take that medication? I think there was um, you know, many sort of aspects at play. Um, for one, it was an experimental treatment. Um, and so the decision not to give it uh, to him um, was because there were really no protocols in place to offer experimental treatments to patients at that time. Um, and so, you know, I think that is one of the primary, uh, one of the primary reasons why that we were told as to why not. Um, but certainly there are ethical considerations there too that needed to be taken into, um, you know, that needed to be taken uh, in context. Um, and, and for one, it's that Dr. Khan is a world-renowned expert um, it, or was a world-renowned expert in hemorrhagic fevers. And he understood um, you know, these, the disease and also you know, the possible treatments um, that he could possibly take at that moment. And so you know, our belief is that if he was given the option, he probably would have consented to take it, um, the, an experimental um, treatment, but you know, he wasn't asked. Um, is what we were told. Um, and so there were also other, you know, possible plans in place like medical evacuations or, um, you know, something that could uh, help help him uh, that just were not uh, executed at the time. What is the story about the two-year-old and the bat and the disease? Yeah, so the, um, this kind of tr- traces back to you know, what are the, what is the origin of the spillover from uh, animal to human? And I think parties can probably speak more to that. But I think the idea is that um, this was likely the first uh, case, uh, the first human case of, of this particular strain of Ebola, likely ever kind of uh, a spillover from a bat to a young boy who was playing in the bushes. Um, but parties, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so uh, th- th- that's exactly right. That you know. Uh, the, by the time the Ebola outbreak was really uh, discovered, uncovered, um, it was when there was like enough cases spread throughout Guinea that it caught attention and the samples were sent to Europe and uh, and tested and identified to have Ebola. And so that's when the world became aware of it. But it had been spreading for a while. Uh, and so a team of epidemiologists went and tried to trace back where did the cases come from? How could they kind of reconstruct the path that the virus had taken? And to their best knowledge, they traced it back to the small remote village in Guinea where they believed this young boy had been uh, playing in a tree inhabited by bats um, and, and believed that that's where this infection happened. And, you know, there's a lot of like very hard earned epidemiological investigations that happen. But the truth is, we'll never know. We don't have that sample. We don't know if it, he had Ebola. We don't know if that was the origin case. Um, this was just, again, this sort of history reconstruction using circumstantial evidence. Um, but, uh, but you know, what we do know is it likely emerged in Guinea and it likely had been circulating for months um, and it probably took a path like this. Um, so I, I kind of use it to sort of say what the origin was, but ultimately it's, it's, it's more of a, the myth than the, the actual knowledge that that was exactly what happened. Now, within that culture, they believed in healers. Why do you think there were people who believed in the healer? And what happened to the healer? Well, I mean, it's, you know, I, that's, I mean, we believe in healers here too in the United States. I, one of the things I often talk about when we, uh, you know, that's so important here is that we anthropomorphize other cultures and we're like, oh, they do this weird thing. And it's like, but if you look at anything we do in the United States, 
I, frankly, you know, why do we, you know, even one, you know, so many things that we do could also be anthropomorphized, like to believe in a healer to, to have believe somebody that has uh, concoctions that make them better um, is natural. And frankly, personally, I'm an MD that, that goes often to non-conventional um, healers than I do doctors for most things. I, I think, I think our medical system has its own issues. I don't, so I guess I, I just wanted to take a moment and say, um, healers are a natural thing to have somebody who has way different ways of trying to make people better. And just like in medicine, some of them, some of them work well and some of them don't. And, and some of them have a little more voodoo than, than not. Um, so all of that is to say that that is one of their kind of, they have communities who have some history and knowledge of ways of making people better. Some of them are tied to more mystical things that, you know, that I might not necessarily believe in, but that's to each their, their own. Um, and in this case, though, uh, just like in hospitals in, in the United States, where um, most infections actually happen in the hospital, you walk in, uh, you know, with a foot pain and you walk out with, um, uh, you know, MRSA, flu or MRSA. Yeah, um, that happens with healers, too. Right? They're, they're seeing they're naturally seeing a lot of people who are ill. Um, and so they become a vector. And that's essentially what, um, you know, what likely, you know, was happening all, all throughout the Ebola outbreak is different places of healing, whether it be healers or hospitals were becoming uh, sources of infection. I also think too, it's important to mention that um, you know, th- these are, you know, healers are community leaders and people whom people trust. And so I think that that's really important that you would go and see somebody who is ill or you would go and visit you know, somebody um, whom you trust to help you in in your circumstances, and who's probably helped before. And so I think, it, like Parties is saying, it's a very natural thing to have happened. Um, and I think that uh, you know community leaders played an essential role in helping to curb the outbreak later on. And so um, I don't think we uh, you can't underestimate the power, uh, regardless of what it's whether it's medicinal or whatever it might be, of of community leaders in in outbreak. Uh, containment and response. What was the mental health of the population before the pandemic and after? So I think that um, first they were kind of dealing with the fallout of a civil war. And so certainly, you know, there's heightened, uh, you know, uncertainty, heightened distrust. Um, But, you know, but definitely when you introduce a pathogen right into an environment like this already, um, there's certainly fallout from uh, from you know, an outbreak that's raged for two plus years. Um, so we definitely saw cases um, where the mental health, depression rates, um, and other types of uh, of mental health disorders increased over the outbreak. And it's not very dissimilar to kind of what we're seeing now in terms of the, the mental health effects or the fallout. Um, from the COVID pandemic as well, right? Because, you know, there were situations just like here in which, you know, there are forced quarantines um, and, uh, and that itself or isolation and that itself can, and can change and affect the psyche of, of a community. So, um, you know, there's also the stigmatization too of, of uh, individuals who survived Ebola, right? It's one thing to, you know, mourn the loss of those who died, but also if you were among those that survived, um, you know, there was a stigma there um, that you could, you know, possibly be infected or, you know, spread it or, you know, misinformation sort of led to that as well. 
Um, so, and, and then there's also levels of survivor, survivor guilt as well that we noted. So, um, so certainly in, in any outbreak environment, there's going to be a mental health effects um, that go beyond just, you know, the virus infecting and getting you sick and, and in some cases, fatal fatality rates going up. Now, during this crisis, explain the importance of culture in a crisis. Yeah, I mean, uh, I would say it's paramount that uh, ultimately that the culture that we create can either stop or, um, or, or enhance the spread of a virus. Um, ultimately, like, you know, we, we see this in just the way that we interact with each other. Um, I, I think we have seen here in the United States the, that um, uh, our culture is frayed and our trust for each other is frayed and that creates real problems um, and, uh, and really allows a, a virus to perpetuate. And one of the things I often say is that a virus will expose and exploit the cracks in our society in the sort of the, the, in our feelings of justice um, and our feelings of trust and cooperation. So we will not, you know, the, the thing is at the end of the day, COVID is this sort of, you know, is expressed as a once in a century event, but to me, it's just a warning. It's just a, a warning of what is possible, but we have not yet seen an outbreak that um, will take out 20 somethings the way that uh, the, you know, uh, 1918 flu did or take our children. Um, and, and we have not seen something where you legitimately are afraid to go to a store ever. Um, and so we are going to contend with something, uh, you know, and I believe in, in our lifetimes or in our children's lifetimes, we're going to contend with something of that nature. And if we don't have these things sorted by then, um, uh, then we are in, in real trouble. Now, you talked about gathering data and why that's so important in the pandemic. Can you elaborate on this a little more? Yeah, I mean, we are nothing without our, without our data. We, we um, ultimately, you know, the uh, it's so critical to have visibility um, into what, um, where infections are, who's getting infected, why, what are the risk levels, where, you know, what geographically, where are they, they're localized, um, just uh, understanding the biology of these viruses. And so everything, every decision we should be made should be made with the most information possible. And when that data is, um, hoarded or co-opted or, you know, or misinformation happens or any, any kind of, any um, hits at the integrity of that data or the accessibility of that data puts us at, in a weaker position against the virus. Um, and so it, it is critical. Now, how can the people in leadership navigate the pandemic effectively? Laura, do you want to take that one? I can, you know, I cannot go, but you, you'll have a good answer for this. I'd yeah. Like yeah. Well, there certainly have been frameworks that have already been created, um, you know, post the Ebola outbreak. Um, you know, there have been so many after action reports um, that have come, you know, and they've all, the, the bottom line was that, you know, we're not prepared for something larger than that. Um, and I remember when we uh, had the manuscript for our book, 
um, it sounded alarmist to some folks <laughs> on like some of the things that we had written. Um, I remember some comments we got back on, on some of these uh, or some background, you know, conversations that we were having. And it's like, this sounds kind of alarmist. Um, and, uh, and so it's an interesting position to be placed in. Um, and so, you know, we certainly have a few different guiding principles. Um, and culture, I think, is at the heart of all of that, um, which is, what, you know, what parties just described as like one of the most important things. Um, and, uh, and leadership in some positions, whatever that might look like, right? So uh, in, in, uh, in West Africa, we talked about how uh, faith-based leaders, for example, are leaders, right? They don't necessarily have to hold positions in government, for example, in order to be considered a leader, that whatever that might be defined within a certain group, um, it's so important to, uh, you know, to establish cultures, right, um, of uh, of, of readiness, resilience, response, um, you know, depending on the, the, the environment that, you know, we're, we're working with. And that looks, that looks very different. Um, but from a, from a global perspective, I mean, we don't really have to this day, right, a, a global governance system, right, for, for responding to, to outbreaks um, or epidemics or even pandemics, right? We kind of have this idea of what we all should be doing, but um, there's not this main level of accountability, right? There's no system of accountability that's in place. Um, and so, uh, you know, what's to say that there aren't going to be bad actors, right? Who can get away with things in times of chaos or confusion or heightened pressure situations um, that they otherwise might not have been able to get away with in times of quiet. Um, and so really it's, it's important for us, as one of the guiding principles um, in uh, creating a, uh, a resilient culture is to have uh, a level of, a global level of, uh, of accountability um, is incredibly important. Now, what is the overall message you would like to leave the audience with after reading your book? You know, I think it's opening their eyes to that realization that this this is hard and this these things happen um, in a way of essentially like I think in in our last chapter we really talk about um, like kind of the, what what we think are guiding principles and I think the one is just un- is understanding those realities so that we can counteract them at every step understanding the realities the harsh realities of an outbreak the fact that there's an insidious deadly threat that weaponizes your neighbor against you, you know, that makes you a weapon. If it, if it, if a virus infects you, um, that is, is scary and frightening to people that has a lot of stigma and shame and, and dangers, but then, then kind of seeing on the other side of that, but, but you are my neighbor and you are my friend and you are my colleague. And the best way that we can stop this virus is from working together and seeing each other as with, with that full humanity. And so I think, for us, it's really understanding why it is that we can descend into this toxic culture and then and then trying to find that guiding light back to working together in cooperation uh, where we need to go. Um, so I, I think that would be, I don't know if that's like, it's not that short, but it's really, to, I guess the short version of it would be to understand the realities and challenges of working together cooperatively amidst an outbreak and one by one kind of unlocking those pieces so that we can, because it is critical to our success. Yeah, and now I think it's more relevant than ever because we have all lived through, right, something. Um, I think initially, you know, trying to, uh, 
have that message resonate, it can be incredibly difficult if you haven't lived through it, right? Or you view it from the lens of an outsider looking in, like what, you know, what we might have seen our readership possibly um, in looking at the Ebola outbreak. But the reality is we're all part of this outbreak culture. We've all seen this in action now, right? And we've all experienced in some ways, you know, the the heroic first responders, right? Um, the the need to protect our protectors, right? We we now have have witnessed that and uh, and have lived through that, right? That incredibly trying, uncertain time, the fear, um, fear of the unknown, fear of the known, sometimes, right? The ability that we, the feeling that you're, we're not acting quick enough, or maybe we're acting too quickly, right? Um, and so. Uh, um, and, and now we're experiencing the fallout, right. Of, of what is, um, you know, what this is, uh, because we know that pandemics and even outbreaks, right. They don't end just, we don't flip the switch and they end, right. They sort of taper and, you know, it's not this, okay. And we're done right. The next day, it's going to, it takes a, a while. Um, and so, uh, now that we're all sort of a part of it, we've all felt that feeling. Um, I think that if, if anything is a call to action in our book, right. That, that this is the time now that we, we all know. So we should all be invested in what's, what's next. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time. What's the next project that you will be working on? I think that um, both Laura and I, you know, continue to believe in the message of what we're trying to do here and thinking about ways of um, understanding and unpacking the, the these this this culture and how it emerges again and again. Um, and so I think we, we're, we're kind of continuing to shine a light on it, investigate it as it comes up, do surveys to really get a sense of what's out there and what's happening. Um, but then I think be part of that process of making the world work collectively better together. I think one one particular passion project. I, so I do re- so I, I do do research um, in viruses like Ebola and SARS-CoV-2, and I'm trying to build diagnostics and surveillance systems and technologies. Uh, but one of the big things I've, I've leaned into during um, this outbreak is education. Um, and so um, uh, a team in my lab has built um, an entire curriculum, a textbook on outbreak science um, for high schoolers, but also curriculum for middle schoolers. And um, uh, that is now being piloted in with the Department of Education of Louisiana and rolled out as a statewide course in the fall. Um, we developed these simulations where you can simulate an outbreak using uh, an app on your phone, the Bluetooth-based app on your phone, where you can actually simulate an entire outbreak on your school campus. And a lot of schools have done that and see what that would look like and to talk about all the things that happen. Um, and, uh, and so we've, we've been doing a lot of this kind of work to be able to, in a low stakes setting, talk about those things. We've been running this since 2015 and we've run a lot of simulations that look a lot like SARS-CoV-2. And we had immunity passports and military coups and walk-ins and all of, everything that we experienced in outbreak culture, we experienced um, even in these games, in these low stakes games. And so we really actually are doing a lot of work on the science, but also the culture to really help people understand what's going to happen if an outbreak of even greater magnitude ever appears and how would we proactively work to create better systems. And I think the great thing about um, what we've done um, 
together is that somehow like we always find a way to, it always comes back. Like we always find a way to get back in touch with each other about something. Like um, I feel like things come full circle. And so even after this book, it's always, um, you know, things, we always point back to each other. So that's, a, that's the great thing about being a health journalist and, and working um, with, uh, and, and, you know, having amazing sources, but also, you know, working in collaboration with, um, with science, uh, scientists. And so, um, you know, I'm a big proponent of science communication. And so, um, that is my, uh, you know, that's, I think my life's calling. And so, um, what has helped me, um, in our collaboration is just to move forward on uh, working on projects now on covering um, epidemics, though not this particular project that I'm working on, I can't say too much, is not uh, related to infectious disease, but is just, um, you know, in magnitude, a a large uh, and worthwhile uh, topic to to cover. So, um, and, and somehow, I don't know, parties and I will always even on that side, I'm like, I'm so in, I'm so into everything Laura's doing. So, (laughs) and I'm, I'm in on parties. So it's, uh, we always come back to each other in some way. So I think that's the great thing. Well, thank you for being on the show and thank you for all the information you shared in your book. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.